We at CISD are very happy to have Dr. Graciana Del Castillo among us, and, and there's a lot of non-CISD faces also that I see, which is, which is very welcome. Graciana, welcome, and, and thanks for being with us here. Uh, Graciana is here to talk about her new book, Guilty Party, the International Community in Afghanistan. This is the book. It's got a really interesting cover. It's available on Amazon. Graciana will give you more details as to how to access it, perhaps. Um, so I'll, I'll leave this very precious copy with her. Uh, the book, Guilty Party, the International Community in Afghanistan, which discusses the post-conflict situation of the aid and drug dependency uh, situation in which the country finds itself in, and what the new government and the international community could perhaps do in order to bring peace, stability, and economic prosperity to the country, and indeed in that region, because it's one of the most important countries that underpins stability uh, in, in uh, South Asia and even in the Middle East. Dr. Del Castillo is no stranger to conflict situations and crisis states. Um, in the 1990s, indeed, she was the first senior economist in the cabinet of the UN Secretary General, involved in ongoing post-conflict operations in Central America, in Asia, and in Africa. In that capacity, she actually designed the Arms for Land program for El Salvador, which was credited for bringing the peace process back on track. Uh, she has also worked on similar issues of economic reconstruction in Timor-Leste, uh, and participated in USAID bids for reconstruction projects in uh, both Afghanistan and Iraq. She's also the author of Rebuilding War-Torn States, The Challenge of Post-Conflict Economic Reconstruction, published in 2008. I think what makes the book very important, very timely, and very relevant for all of us is um, uh, the imminent pullout of the <coughs> International Security Assistance Force in, uh, from Afghanistan and the recently concluded, some say relatively successfully concluded, elections in, in Afghanistan. Afghanistan has been the subject of many reconstruction programs, starting with the Tokyo Donors Meet in 2002, the Afghan National Development Strategy in 2008, and recently uh, USAID's recent $150 million uh, aid program. But peace and reconstruction somehow seem elusive uh, in, in the region. And, and you know, traditional social structures, however flawed you and I might think they are, have been dismantled in a way that the new social structures drafted on to the country don't really seem to be filling the vacuum. And uh, Afghanistan is also a very important uh, uh, you know, proxy in the theater between two regional powers, which is Pakistan and India. And that, that makes uh, uh, peace and stability in Afghanistan far more important than a lot of us uh, actually uh, think it is. Um, a book like uh, Dr. Del Castillo's that looks at how aid dependency and wrong policy choices have propelled Afghanistan down this road can actually go a long way in changing the discourse, especially by apportioning responsibility. So without any more words, I will turn the table over, uh, the chair over to Dr. Uh, <coughs> Del Castillo. Welcome once again, and thank you. Thank you for the invitation, and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, uh, Professor Flesch and, and Professor Roy for organizing this, and for Kevin, who I haven't met, for setting it up. Um, what I'm going to be discussing today is what you don't hear about Afghanistan, which is the economic issues, the reconstruction and the economic issues. And uh, unfortunately, these issues sometimes, you know, talking about the budget is really boring. But, but these are the issues that we should have thought more. And these are the issues that have led to a very bad situation because most of these countries have been working on countries coming out of war or natural disasters. Uh, for the last uh, over 20 years, and the record is really dismal. I mean, half of them, about half of them, go back to war. The other half become highly aid-dependent, 
You know, in the aftermath of the financial crisis where Europe and the U.S. are still recovering, and uh, it's, this is not sustainable. And this is what I'm going to try to convince you. Uh, at the same time, there is a, there is a dilemma because um, aid um, is very easily appropriated, especially in the U.S. Congress, for military issues, but not for economic issues. So, so I, I, I will try to uh, show you uh, this big dilemma. Um, the, the other thing is I know you have different backgrounds, so please write down anything you don't understand and we'll discuss it. I'm going to leave plenty of room for that. So, so let's, um, so, so as, uh, as uh, uh, Pallavi said, uh, there was, uh, there is a new national unity government uh, led by Ashraf Ghani, who I criticize very much in my book. I didn't know he was going to be president, so. <laughs> but, but it's a shaky step, step forward. I mean, a lot of people have interpreted this as a big step forward because it's the first time there is, uh, at least since 1901, there is a, a transfer of power from one ruler to another. Uh, but there is a very bumpy road ahead. And first of all, it's a, it's a government that assumes power with no money at all in the, in the Treasury. So, uh, and it's in an aid trap, and I, I will show you in more detail. <clears throat> but for the last 13 years, since 2002, the international community has been financing aid, both a, a military and economic aid that has uh, been about 70 over 75 percent of GDP and since 2009 when the surge started it has been 90 percent of GDP so basically we have been doubling Afghanistan's income during this period uh, at the same time the insurgency is gaining ground uh, you have you just have to look at the indices to see uh, what is happening in the country. It's the most violent country ac according to the Global Peace Index. It's a, and it's between two very violent uh, nuclear armed countries, India and Pakistan. It's a, the failed index says it's the seventh worst country. Corruption, it's, a, it's, a, it's the first country, the worst country, um, similar ranking to North Korea and Somalia. And the uh, anti-money laundering index, they say that it's the country most at risk of money laundering and, and terrorist uh, activity. So, I mean, all the, when we look at the economic progress, I mean, you will read a lot about all the economic progress, but in fact, you look at the Human Development, Development Index, which is a good way to look at it. And it's still at the bottom 10%, which hasn't changed much from what it was you know, before the intervention in 2002. And also, the UNDP calculates you know, these indexes, they change over time. So basically, they, they, have, they, take, um, they make corrections to compare one year over another. And there has hardly been any improvement since 2008. So when you look at the basic uh, health services coverage, there is still, I mean, basic health services is still providing to something like 58%. But when you look at infant and maternal mortality rates, 
they have improved a lot, and everybody says they have improved a lot. But if you compare them with countries, low-income countries or countries in, in, in South Asia, they have the slope has not changed at all. So with all this amount of aid, they are performing just as well as these other countries that have had hardly any aid. So you, st you still have millions of people without basic health and severely food insecure. In the first part of the book, I cover, you know, I, I use a trip I, I did when I was living in Iran during the last year of the Shah in 78. And I, I, I went all around the country. And I used that to describe the history of the country and the economics because each region is not only ethnically different, but their the, the resources are very different. They are integrated to different countries in the region and so forth. Uh, but at that time, Afghanistan was a very poor country but had food security and the normal weather conditions had food security. Now they are importing food that they could produce. I mean, they're importing all things that they produced in the past. So something is wrong. So the other thing is that still they have polio they have a lot of people displaced. I mean, in the, in the last year alone, 125,000 people have been displaced. Um, and, and these people, of, you know, by displacement means that you, you have to provide them with services, with food and everything else. The life expectancy, despite the fact that USAID says it's much higher, Nobody believes it, including uh, other, including the Inspector General uh, for Afghanistan. So, most most agencies, the World Bank, and everybody uh, agrees that it's still below 49 years of age. And also, if you look, if you compare, if you graph that with low-income countries and with um, uh, East Asia, they have it's about a 20 year gap on average, which has been kept the same. So even the gains from 43 years to 49, it's similar from other countries. So where did aid go to? It's not clear. The literacy rate. I mean, uh, uh, President Bush used to love to say how many uh, children, and especially girls, were going to school. Yes, they're going to school. but. Literacy is still below 30%. So uh, only one in 15 rural women can read or write, and 76% of the population is rural. So, so the, the gains, are, you, you have to see the gains in, a, in, a, in the context that they have taken place. The, the improvement in gender is true. I mean, when you see, you know, I was born in Latin America. When you see how many women they have in Congress, yes, great progress. But then you have to see the rest. I mean, it's the, the most of the gains have been to to part of the of the urban population, which is less than a fourth uh, of the population. The per capita income has tripled, but it's still below 700, and it's one of the lowest in the world. So per capita GDP remains. Uh, the lowest in Asia and among among the, the 20, at the bottom 20, per 20 countries in the world. But, but most importantly, 
you know, 60% of, of the population is below 25 years of age, which means that you have new entrants today. So, so you have to combine. I mean, it, what's the purpose of educating people if you are not going to have jobs for them? So you have to be very careful. Every year, they will have 400,000 new people entering the labor market. So this is where we have failed spectacularly to see how these people are going to be incorporated into uh, productive activities. It doesn't matter what, but productive activities. So let me backtrack. And what happened in 2002? When in 2002, Afghanistan embarked in a multi-pronged transition. So there were, the Bonn Agreement uh, that some of you might know about, it wasn't a peace agreement. Basically, because you make peace with your enemies, and the enemy at that time was the Taliban, and the Taliban was not included. So <laughs> the, the peace, it wasn't a peace agreement. So everybody participated. And the reason why they didn't include the Taliban is that they thought they had vanished and uh, they were, you know, exterminated. So this is how they started the process. The, the, so, so the Bonn Agreement contemplated a very uh, clear political program that, that went all right for a while, okay? Then the problem was the security transition. And the security transition, you know, they had to establish, the first thing you do when you move from war to peace is to establish security forces that will support the peace process. And that was delayed. I mean, the Abdullah, who's now the, the who, who was one of the candidates, as you know, and now he will have executive powers. He wrote a very nice uh, column at the end of 2002, one year after the, the U.S. invasion, and, and uh, he said very clearly that they had not yet started to build up a, national, a civilian police and to improve the, the... And that was a big problem because security soon started deteriorating. And the, and the Taliban that was considered vanished by 2003, it was back in, in the country. So, so there were, you know, the, the issues, the economic issues, even not only the economic transition is very important because it has to help finance the other transitions, but also all the issues are very involved. I mean, uh, investment depends on the rule of law and property rights and gender rights. You know, the, the issue of public security is very important, the mining of the fields. During the Soviet times, they had mined all the fields. Then they had years of civil war, the Taliban. So you have to demine fields if you want to go back to rural development. So these things were very... The other thing that didn't happen is that one thing that has proved to be a key pro quo for effective uh, reconstruction of a country following war is that you have to have a, a process of national reconciliation. before. In, in, uh, before, during the World Wars, for example, the, 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 the forces each went to their own countries. But here, because it's an internal conflict, they have to go back to the same villages and live with each other. So this is, uh, national reconciliation is very important, but they had to reconcile not only the ethnic groups, but also with the Taliban, and the Taliban was not part of the process. Uh, and also, 
a reconciliation requires integration because you can't ask uh, former combatants to give up arms without giving them a, a productive alternative. And it doesn't have to be productive. It could be with the, with the um, police or with the armed forces or whatever, but they have to be reintegrated. And this, uh, there, are, there is a lot of work done in this area and I was during the summer. I was in uh, in Japan, and I discussed it with JICA and the, the Japanese government because they were responsible for the reintegration, and they agreed that it, the failure of re reintegration was that they could not provide rather permanent jobs. I mean, they did some things, like for instance, they would put them to clean a river, something. But that's that's uh, something that. It's, it's a job that will last for a few weeks and so forth. They couldn't provide alternatives, productive alternatives to people that were willing to give up the, the insurgency. And the other thing, the, the last, uh, last but not least transition that a country has to go uh, through is the economic transition. And, and this is very, it was very difficult in Afghanistan after uh, 23 years of war and four years of drought, very serious drought. Um, the, the, the rural development where 80% on which 80% of the population depended on for livelihoods, and it, it was destroyed, not only because of the, of the mi mining, but also because of the weather, weather conditions, and also because uh, a lot of people had left during the Soviet war, because the Soviet war, while, while the uh, civil war after the Soviets left, after the communist regime collapsed, was fought in the main cities, the, the Russian, the Soviet war invasion destroyed the, the rural setting, and a lot of people emigrated not only to the to the cities, but emigrated to Pakistan, Iran, and and, and other places. Okay, so basically, uh, what went wrong in this transition? Looking at the economic transition, which is what I what I uh, do, uh, you know, they had a war economy, so an underground economy, and giving up, you know, here people will have to give up some of these illicit activities that are normally very profitable. So it's, it's, it's not easy to get out of the underground economy, particularly when the drug economy is as strong as it, it was in Afghanistan. Uh, so basically, you know, when I started working on these countries coming out of war after the collapse, of, after the end of the Cold War, we at the UN, and I was at the Secretary General's office at that time, we believed, oh, these are countries at very low levels of development, let's leave it to UNDP to deal with, the development program to deal with. This is development as usual. We thought that at the very beginning, and immediately we realized this is not development as usual at all. And in fact, you have to go through something intermediate, which I call economics of peace. You can call it economic reconstruction, economic transition, or whatever. But there, the main objective is a political objective of ensuring that the country does not relapse into conflict. And if you do that, if that's your main objective, then you cannot 
uh, achieve first best economic policies or financial policies because you can't you, you have to bend the rules and many times you have to accept policies that you know are not good in the medium and long term but you have to you know you have to adopt them in the short run to avoid going back to war and I, I like to, if you want, we can talk about more of these because they are very uh, interesting uh, examples that I can give you from different countries in which forgetting this has brought back the country to war. Um, so that does not mean that normal development should not start right away. What I'm saying, you have these two parallel tracks and if they clash for resources, because you know, in these countries you have very limited economic resources. So if they do clash for resources, you should always, the political objective, that is the, the peace objective, should always prevail over the economic or development objective. And I, we can discuss later of examples where that was violated and the country went relapse into war. So the other thing that uh, everybody wrote about it, but nobody did anything about it, is that uh, there is something that economists call reverse causality. Uh, and political sciences, scientists have referred to it as two sides of the same coin or you know, other ways, but it's the same thing. Basically, security might be a precondition for the transition to peace. Yeah, so you should focus on security. But you have to do the other things also because the political, social, uh, and economic transitions are going to affect security. And what, happens, what happened basically was that everybody was obsessed by security, especially after the uh, the surge in 2009. And, and it's true that they got some agricultural experts and they brought some other people to work on the economics, but they weren't integrated. I mean, and, and most of the people they brought to work on the economic projects, development projects, they took them to the most insecure areas where many times they were wasted because there is very little you can do in areas where the security is really bad. Especially building infrastructure there, it's a waste because it's normally, you know, there are some dams that they have done it several times um, because, so, so this is another big problem in, in many of these countries, you know. Security, yes, but you cannot, you know, this transition that I mentioned earlier, the, the multi-pronged transition, has to start at the same time and has to support each other because if it doesn't, then the whole thing will be put at risk. Okay, so, so basically it's not development as usual. Um, and, and the reason that they, re they delayed the reconstruction had two effects. One, something that in the, in the Marshall Plan was very important is that you know, you have to give them humanitarian assistance, but that is going to increase the level of consumption, not investment. So you have to start that, but you have to start investment at the same time. Otherwise, you end up 
aid-dependent, and this did not happen. At the same time, the large majority of the population <coughs> did not have a peace dividend in terms of better living conditions and livelihoods. Okay. The, the second thing that was a big failure was the drug economy. You know, it's not easy to give up a drug economy that it's very profitable. And here you have a, a, a very paternalistic um, system from drug traffickers that go to farmers and they bring them the seeds, they bring them the, they give them credit, they bring them technical assistance if they have a, a, a some problem, and they pick up the the, the crop. So. Basically, all these farmers become dependent on the trafficker, and if, they, if there is a problem with the crop, they owe, they owe the, the trafficker. And the government, Ghani in particular, you know, they, wa they, want, they came with all these World Bank ideas that you have to support only high productivity projects. I mean, I have, of course, as an economist, I want to do that. But in the meantime, all these farmers, instead of being able to produce for subsistence, they went into drug production. Uh, the end result, to cut a long story short, and we can talk more about this later, during the, the, the since, since 2002, Afghanistan on average produced twice as much opium as they did during the Taliban. I mean, twice as much, 5,200 tons a year. Uh, so the, the issue of this uh, reverse causality was a big problem because uh, without, um, without security, what happens was that economic reconstruction, governance, and, and the national reconciliation suffered. And at the same time, because there were delays in, in economic reconstruction, um, and national reconciliation, that affected in turn security. And, and the other big problem was that because the, 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 the um, uh, Bonn Agreement, in a way, it codified the, the status of the warlords that had first fought the, the Soviets and th then fought themselves in the civil, during the Civil War and then fought with the Northern Alliance as part of the Northern Alliance, they fought the Taliban. So, and these people were enhanced by the, um, by the uh, Bonn Agreement. And the problem was that some of them, like Ismail, was a uh, Han, Ismail Han, he controlled Herat, which is the border, a border, a very important border province. And that's where the customs revenue are very important. But he had no, incentive to share it with the central government, he kept it for himself, and the same with other warlords. And therefore, the, the government was deprived of the, the main source of revenue, which is customs duties. Um, at that time, during the first five years, the, they have a domestic revenue average 3% of GDP. So you can see the, a government, a central government, cannot do much with that kind of revenue. So um, 
So let me, I, I'm a bit uh, behind of what I wanted to do. So, but I want to give you some idea because it, it's not very easy to get data on Afghanistan, but there is very good data on the US. And to show you how crazy US policies have been on Afghanistan, I want to show you <laughs> it in, in terms of the data, of the cost of the. So you have a country that produced uh, the total GDP since 2002 was a 133 billion, but the U.S. in the war spent 650 billion where were appropriated for the war. Okay, um, so the cost was much higher because these 650 billion, that's only the budgetary costs. But then you have all the non-budgetary costs of pensions of the people that were killed and they had to, you know, all, all these programs for the, for the disabled and all that. And that has been estimated in trillions. Okay, so I'm going to put that on, on the side. Uh, of that 650 billion appropriated for the war, 100 billion were appropriated for Afghan, Afghan, Afghanistan's reconstruction. Of that, 70 billion, about 70, these, these are all very rough calculations, 70 billion were dispersed. Of that 70 billion dispersed, 60% or 43 billion went to the security forces. So we created a secu security forces that cost a third of the GDP that was produced during those years, on average. I mean, you, you, you can see how insane it is to create a security forces. Because this means if, if most of this is wages and salaries, so this means that the country will not be able to finance this level of security forces for years, decades to come. The rest, or 27 billion, which is 4% of the 650 allocated went to non-security. And there you had governance and development, you had counter-narcotics and some humanitarian. So you can see that the emphasis of the US operation was very much on the security, on creating the security forces. Uh, uh, so, so focusing on the security transition to the neglect of the other transitions. Okay, the other thing I want you to understand is that many people have said that countries in Asia, particularly Afghanistan and, par and countries in Africa, they don't get any aid at all compared to Bosnia, Kosovo and things. And it's not true at all because it doesn't matter in terms of nominal dollars. I mean, yes, uh, 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 um, if you look there, Bosnia got $293, while Afghanistan only got 57 in the first year after the war. Okay? But that doesn't matter at all. What matters is how, how that affects your life. and that, So you have to compare that with your income. Uh, so you can do it in terms of per capita income or in terms of the income of the country. It doesn't make any sense, n any difference. But, but that's what matters. So if you do that, you see that countries like, um, like uh, Afghanistan, in the 10 year, in the first decade, they, they, the international community 
This is only economic aid, ODA. The international community financed 43% of uh, the, so, so added 43% of their GDP on an annual basis. In the case of Liberia, it was 57%. So you see that these countries have received an enormous amount of aid in terms of their economies. Okay? Like, like, for instance, if I, if I come out of my apartment and I want to give $100 to my, uh, to my neighbor, it's not going to make any difference in his life. But if I go to the subway and I give to somebody who is asking for money, I give $100, it's a lot of money. And this is the same. That's why you have to look at aid in terms of per capita or in terms of GDP to, 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 to get a feeling of how much it... Uh, the other thing is that while in Bosnia, you see, aid was falling over, over the period, in Afghanistan it was increasing. So that's, a, that's another issue. Um, well, if, if we put together, you know, if we put together total aid, um, total ODA plus the security, and you look at the total aid, as I said before, uh, 70, from 2002 to 2011, there is no later data, it was 75% of the GDP and 90% is if you look at since 2009, okay? And, and I, think, I think this is important because it shows the tremendous aid trap that the country is in and how difficult it's going to be to get that kind of money. But then, you know, most people get surprised when I show this because the, the, the international financial institutions and many of the bilateral agencies, like U USAID, they have been complementing themselves. And why do they complement themselves? But just look at this. Over the past decade, Afghanistan has made an enormous progress in reconstruction and development, but remains one of the poorest countries in the world. I mean, we already saw how little progress in development. And, but look, this is even more striking. This is the mission chief who just went to Afghanistan in May, and he comes back and he says that, th that uh, Afghanistan has made a lot of progress in reconstruction, development, and lifting incomes of its population over the, 12, over the past 12 years. With significant reform efforts and donor support, from the international community. And then he says, Afghanistan has maintained macroeconomic stability, by which I mean low inflation, low debt, a balanced budget, and a small surplus in its external current account. I mean, it's, you know, and let me show you because I, I had to show you this. First of all, eh, even the bank and the fund, they say themselves that a lot of the high growth Afghanistan has been growing at 9% a year since 2002, a little bit less now, but close to 9%. So it's a very important rate of growth. But first of all, it started for a, the, the income per capita was $180 per person, and the, the income of the country, the, the GDP of the country was something like six. So you can see a country with 25 million people and how, how uh, so 
it's not difficult to grow. But more importantly, the bank and the fund had been saying that a lot of the growth had to do with the weather. So they had nothing to do with it. So it has nothing to do with policies. It has to do with the weather. And look here. In 2011, it grew six and a half. But in 2012, they had a lot of um, the, the weather conditions were very good. And so the agriculture production was very good, both the licit and the illicit, drug also. And drug, in theory, is not included in GDP. But in practice, you know, the farmers uh, get income from the traffickers and they use it to buy their, their things. So in a way, the second round is included in GDP. So, so you can see that. But it's, it's interesting, and, and looking ahead, one of the problems is that investment has collapsed. Why? When I was in 2011 there, I went to a, to a price, uh, no, it wasn't price, Ernst Young, one of the uh, big accounting firms, uh, had a, a meeting with, with the <coughs> clients, and it was very interesting because in the lunch I was talking to some of the main uh, uh, business people there, and they all were planning to leave because most of the things they were producing, and these were foreigners, so it was foreign direct investment, but they were, you know, of Afghan origin uh, expatriates, and they all were planning to leave because most of the things they produced were produced for the international community and for the foreign forces. So they all had it very clear that they were winding out, uh, winding down investment. So you see now how investment had gone down from 24% to 17%, and this is going to be one of the main challenges ahead. So let me show you the fiscal sector, the balanced budget that they talk about. Here, as in other countries, uh, uh, the fiscal sector reflects the, the, the fiscal situation of the government. But in many countries coming out of war, there is another budget, which is often called external budget or development budget, which is financed by donors. So donors finance that outside the government. Why? Because many think that the government is corrupt or inefficient. I mean, they execute a very small part of their budget and so forth. So they have this, they keep this. Uh, so, you know, eventually the two will have to uh, con consolidate at some point, and this is what they're doing now, which is very difficult. But let me give you s just uh, a little bit of a flavor of, you have, you have a core budget, which includes both operating and development or investment. So for instance, in the, in the security, you know, if, if it's operating, the operating would be paying the, the police forces and the military, and the, and the investment would be buying uh, trucks, uh, whatever for them, trucks or whatever. So, but then you have the operating balance. And the operating balance, uh, you know, you have the difference between revenue, domestic revenue. They, they were thinking, I mean, all the projections of the World Bank and the IMF was that domestic revenue, which I told you it was 3% in the early years, has been growing very nicely until 2011. But since 2000, 
2011, it has been collapsing. So people don't know there is a lot of uncertainty, so why should they pay taxes? So basically, it, it has collapsed. It was supposed to be over 13%, 13.5% 13 in 2013, and it's 9.5%, okay? And, and from that, you know, they are, their expenditure is 24%, 24.3%. So the difference, obviously, are the, the grants. But these are grants only to the core budget. The core budget includes the operating and the development or investment, okay? In addition, you have what the international community finances through their own operations or through NGOs or through the UN or whatever, they have the development budget. And that was 34.4%, I mean 31.5% that year, okay? So they have income, they have domestic revenue, which is below 10%, and they have grants that are 46% of GDP. So you can see what situation the new government is, is adopting. Uh, the other thing is that many, many uh, especially journalists, they say, oh, the, the international community finances uh, the, the, um, the government budget and imports. No. In one very important uh, relationship in economics is that the, the excess of imports over exports is going to be equal, identically equal to the gap between investment and savings in the private sector and in the government sector, which is the, the government deficit. So basically, when you look at, at, at the total situation here, the current account deficit, the, in, in 2003, the current account deficit was 43%. So we are financing 43% of the, 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 the things that come into the country. But uh, the public sector deficit, uh, we are financing even more, which means that the private sector is uh, saving more than what it invests. And that reflects also the fact that the private sector, with this uncertainty, the private sector is not willing to invest very much. So one of the things is that you would think that agriculture has a, a very large weight because they need to create food security. They need to improve the, the, the options for farmers to move away from drugs. Uh, and they need to provide livelihoods for uh, now 76% of the population still lives in the rural sector. So you would think that they, their focus should be on agriculture and how you revive uh, the agricultural sector. But as you, will, as you see from, this is the 2014 budget. 13, uh, so you see that of, of, of the budget for this year, for this year, 44% is going to the security forces. So you see, it doesn't make any sense at all to have 43%, for, 44% for the security forces, and only less than 8% for agriculture. 
So that's why, uh, so what to do? I mean, obviously this is not sustainable. Uh, the, the International Monetary Fund has estimated that the international community will basically finance the needs for the next decade, which starts in 2015 and ends 2024. They will finance both military and economic needs. I personally don't think that's feasible because they will need between 8 and $12 billion a year. And just to give you an idea, a country like Pakistan with, um, with um, 180 million people and a close ally of the US and a nuclear weapon <laughs> holder gets $3 billion a year and it's falling and it's one and a half for military and one and a half for economics, for economic sake. So how is Afghanistan going to get, you know, five billion of aid, economic aid? I, I'm sure the, the U.S. Congress will never approve that. So they will have to do something. Uh, and what can they do? I mean, the, 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 the obvious thing is they have to reduce security costs. And how can they reduce? They have to reach some kind of agreement with the Taliban because those security forces that take 44% of your budget is not sustainable. Um, so, so basically, what I, what I recommend in the book, and I have recommended it uh, elsewhere in more detail, if you're interested, I can give you the, the, the references, is reconstruction zones. Now, what are reconstruction zones? One of the problems is that if you read whatever, five more minutes, if you read, whatever you read about Afghanistan, they say, oh, the mineral resources, they're very rich in mineral resources. Yes, but the Chinese have invested $3 billion um, in, the, in the largest copper mine, and they haven't been able to start producing. And there are many problems. There are problems with the fact that um, there are problems, security problems, there's problems with the, with the communities, and you have also problems <coughs> with the fact that it's a landlocked country and you need to build railways and, and things to bring the, the minerals to, to the ports. So, so the only way you can attract, the, the, the bank and the fund need a big uh, 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 point early on saying that that Afghanistan was getting 5% of its GDP in foreign direct investment, and that this could increase much more with the mineral deposits. But foreign direct investment that was 5% in 2005 is now 0.6%. So nobody wants to invest in Afghanistan in the way it is. So they have to, they have somehow to put together the local communities with the foreign investors winning in a win-win situation because otherwise security will not be there and investors are not going to be forthcoming. So I can, I can say more about this during the questions if you are interested. Okay, thank you very much for that, Graciana. I think that was a really interesting, stimulating conversation. The one thing that I took away from what you said, perhaps the most important thing was there can't be a reconstruction process without talking to the Taliban, and that really doesn't seem to be out there in the establishment discourse. Uh, so it's very good that you've headlined the point, but uh, being the chair, I have a lot of questions to ask, but I won't ask them. 
We'll open it up to questions. How do you want to take it? Do you want to take it one at a time? Do you want we'll to take it? Okay. If so I try to make them by topic then. So I address them. Okay, so then let's let's have a show of hands. We'll take the questions and then and you can decide how you want to take them. How do you want to go about this? First question? Anyone? <coughs> yes. I mean, it's, it's easy to diagnose a problem, but it's quite difficult to plan a strategy to implement development in a country like Afghanistan. How, how do you think that could have been done better or should be done in the, in the future? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question because, you see, that's what the book does. It, it focuses on Afghanistan, but it, we have to learn from the things we have done, done wrong. Uh, if you if you look at the book, you will see I'm very critical of the development uh, reconstruction. But if you read the inspector, I, I don't know if you know, but the the U.S. government has uh, several oversight bodies that uh, analyze how the money is spent, and there is a, an inspector general for Afghanistan, and he has a. Report, he reports to Congress on a quarterly basis. And this report, it's called SIGA report. It's even more devastating than my criticism. My criticism is from what I saw going to different provinces when I was there. Uh, and he has devastating uh, criticism but it's really difficult for the U.S. government. First of all, a lot of people say, oh, he's there out to get us. And the other thing is that there are so many uh, bodies involved, uh, you know, in the State Department, in the Department of Defense, in USAID, and everybody else is involved. So it's very difficult. It's been very difficult to set up policy. So one thing, I think both the Inspector General for Afghanistan and for, um, for Iraq have said it very clearly, you know, this is not working, we should have a, a, somebody in charge. And I think it's the same at the country level. In my previous book, I made recommendations about that. Because, you know, when you have so many bodies involved, it's very difficult to integrate and to avoid all the duplication and, and the, the lack of consistency among the problems. So that's, that's one problem. But there are many other problems. Uh, there is the problem of how the money is channeled. When I was out now in, in Japan, one of the problems, JICA is a very effective uh, agency but in Afghanistan, they have, because of security issues, they have very few people. So the way they, ch and they are the second donor. So the way they channel is either through the, the um, NGOs or the UN, uh, or the UN uh, agencies. And that has proved to be incredibly ineffective. I mean, UNDP has a, pro has a program uh, of about close to $1 billion. And I was there, and I sat with the head of the, and I said, well, tell me about your pro programs. One, I had gone and seen it, which is the, it's called the um, uh, Alice Gunn Project. And it's a project financed funds from the Australia. And the idea was great. We would build up 
uh, housing for the the returnees. There were lots of people coming from from Afghan from uh, uh, Pakistan in particular, but also from Iran and other countries. So it was a place. But they they set up this place in the middle of nowhere. Absolutely. I mean, there was nothing. There wasn't a tree. There was there wasn't a school. There was, so they created this, and they didn't even. They thought they would bring water from somewhere, and then they couldn't. So they m built a hundred and I think thirteen hundred housing units for Afghanistan families, which are seven eight people, and it was never used. I mean, they they brought the people there, and they had to leave because they didn't have a way of surviving there. So we have to also revise the, you think, what are they thinking of when they do things like that? You know? But then the only other program they could talk about pride is that they were taking mullahs, the, the priests, to um, Dubai and Malaysia to see how women were treated there and how the women's rights there. So I mean, so what is the UN doing with close to $1 billion? in a country that the GDP is 20 billion. <laughs> so, um, so we have to revise also the way these agencies work in these countries. The other thing is that uh, there was a lot of uh, building up expectations uh, during especially the early period. I mean, uh, President Bush went to say, oh, I want a, a Marshall Plan for Afghanistan. The Marshall Plan was perhaps the best plan the U.S. ever had in reconstruction, but, you know, it didn't apply at all to countries coming out of civil war at very low levels of development and blah, blah, blah. But there was one lesson from the... From the from the Marshall Plan, which is very well described in um, in Alan Dahl's uh, book on, it's called Marshall Plan. And it's that the fact that you can't give money to people in, a, in, a, in an open-ended way. You have to make sure that, that humanitarian assistance to bring consumption to minimum levels is short-term, and that you are giving them the tools at the same time to produce their own things. And that was forgotten completely. Why? Because, you know, Afghanistan was coming out of 23 years of war, so the, most, the Taliban didn't provide any services. And before, during the, during the civil war, also there were very few. So most services were, produced, were uh, provided by NGOs and, and uh, UN. So they acted in that way. You know, they provided using their own people and their own goods. Sometimes they imported goods to provide food instead of having people plant their own food. So we have to revise completely. I thought, when I finished this book, I said, well, maybe it was the wrong time because we are never, we Americans, we are never going to get into nation building ever again. But now, you know, nation building in, in, uh, in uh, Syria, they're talking about nation building in Syria. So I think it's time that we, and, and some countries have, are already doing it. For instance, um, the Dutch in, um, in, uh, in Afghanistan 
and in other countries that I've been in, in contact with, they have revised completely the way they provide their aid. Before, they used to do it, channel it through NGOs and, and uh, UN agencies. Now they go directly to the private sector. They go directly, they bring their own companies. And this is in, in my reconstruction zones. That's the way I want to do it. You can't bring investors to very insecure situations on their own. You have to provide security at the same time. So one, one way of doing it is through you know, zones that are secure because they are whatever, you know, they are in a specific place, they are secure. And also by putting them together with local people. So the local people would provide the security. So you have, we have to start thinking how to revise. And it's not so simple because, you know, you say, well, private sector focus is better. Yes and no. One of the problems in these situations is that a lot of people make a lot of money in the underground economy, in Liberia, for instance. You know, all the, the people that made a lot of money during, those are the capitalists that then are um, supported by the international community and they keep on doing all the illicit things they did before. So, you know, building up a private sector in, in countries coming out of these war economies is very, very complicated. But we have to go in that direction and we have to make sure that we revive. You know, we keep on doing the same thing, hoping to, to have a better impact. And we, we know very well the things. And, and for instance, the reconstruction zone. So people ask me, oh, have they, done bef have they been done before? And I said, no, but if we keep on doing the same thing, you know, we, we need to change it. And we need to see, I mean, many of, they haven't been adopted as reconstruction zones, but there are examples of foreign investors <coughs> working with the communities that work in the sense that you know they are welcomed by the community. I went to the Niger Delta, and I was amazed by, uh, I was in a panel in a South-South Summit, in a panel with the people from Chevron, and I couldn't believe all the money they lose because of the way the communities attack their, their infrastructure, their pipelines. So if you make sure that the community is benefiting from your investment, then you won't have this type of thing. So I think we have to find ways in which now the way it works in, in Afghanistan, when you look at the, uh, the promotion um, framework for, for foreign investors and domestic elites, you see that all the, um, all the promotion, all the incentives are for these few companies. But the, the large majority does not have a, a playing level field. So that's what you have to build up. Should we look for more questions, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. sure. Pakistan and India being the very close neighbor to Afghanistan, so what uh, international communities be in uh, on this? How can those neighboring countries be integrated into sort of like when it comes to nation building? And one, one of the things, I mean, when you mentioned the Taliban, I mean, a, a lot of people think, uh, political scientists that, that are very involved in Afghanistan, they will argue that, you know, negotiating with the Taliban is not the way that 
putting pressure on, uh, on uh, Pakistan will be the way because basically you have a porous border that that's, you know, that's where that, what, that is what has enabled the Taliban to operate in Afghanistan and a lot of them are in the border. So, so that's a big issue between, uh, between uh, them. Now on, 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 on uh, economic issues, I think India has been, uh, has provided a lot of aid and has also tried to focus on more on the economic issues than on the um, uh, security. I think there are lots of things, and it's not only Pakistan, India, but it's also the, 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 the Central Asian republics, because a lot of the things, like for instance, they, the pipelines, they can bring the pipelines through Afghanistan, they can lower the price of electricity and uh, things like that, uh, and they can bring even things to China if they had the security. So, I mean, Afghanistan was the, you know, it was the uh, main part of the, of, the, of the Silk Road. And now they have been trying to revive that. But it's, it's a chicken and egg problem. If you don't have some security, it's very difficult to do that. And you saw, I don't know if you saw in the Financial Times, I think this weekend, where the, the, the Chinese were very enthusiastic about this railroad that they did that goes through Kazakhstan to, to Germany. And it saves, you know, it saves a lot of time because it's faster and all that. And, and now, because of the situation in Ukraine and all that, it, it, it creates uncertainty. So, you know, if you have uncertainty and you are in business, you can't afford it. You, you might have to, you know, to go through a different route and all that. So uh, Afghanistan could play with the neighbors. I mean, the neighbors are incredibly important because they are, they are related, you know, with the gas from one place to, to the, the ports. I mean, the main port is in Pakistan. So, and this is why many think that the U.S. is not confronting Pakistan with the Taliban because, you know, now they have to remove their their uh, equipment and troops and everything else and they need the, 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 the exit through Pakistan. Uh, they can't do it through Iran. So so I think I think regional factors are extremely important in, in, uh, in the way Afghanistan moves forward. I mean, they can be a source of instability easily and, uh, but they are all interested, I mean, even China interested in having, remember that China has a tiny border with Afghanistan, and that's where they have the Agor uh, insurgency. So uh, they, they, everybody should have a stake in a, in a more secure Afghanistan. Thank you very much, Graciana, thank you very much.